Welcome back to the Next Big Thing podcast. I'm your host, Sam Ogborn. I had to do a quick roll call right now and I got to look each and every one of you in the face, which I can't do, which I wish I could do. I wish I could say hi to every single one of my listeners. But if I were to do this and I were to ask you point blank, have you spent the entire quarantine or COVID in your sweats and potentially being antisocial? How would you answer that? I'm assuming you would answer by saying, if you were honest, Yes, Sam, I have been at home in my sweats and I've been antisocial and I've barely talked to anyone. Because same, also same. I mean, I'm talking to people on the podcast, but I've been the same exact way. And today's episode is actually going to help you get out of your shell a little bit more, your little COVID shell. Because today we have Casey and Julie of Vital Voice Guys, you're gonna want to listen to this episode. You're gonna want to take notes because Casey and Julie know their shit. This is what they do. They specialize in public speaking, voice and communication tactics and practice and coaching. So if you've ever needed help with your voice or you hate getting in front of a group of people, you feel anxious, which by the way is completely normal as we'll discuss in the podcast episode. But if you ever feel that way, or you even feel anxious on a Zoom call, which I do all the freaking time, then you are going to love this episode because they talk all about this and tactics that you can use to feel more confident. Even talking to Casey and Julie, well, first of all, they're so talented and they have incredible backgrounds in theater and they are public speaking pros. So they know their stuff, you guys. But In talking to them, I think my biggest takeaway for this podcast episode was that if you are feeling like you're not as confident when it comes to public speaking, that's completely okay. Like it's actually okay that you feel that way. And most people start to feel down on themselves. It's like when you call someone and you listen to your voice in a voicemail and you're like, what? That's how I sound. Like sometimes you just don't have awareness into how you actually sound. I mean, that's how I felt listening to this podcast episode or every podcast episode that I've recorded. I'm like, oh my God, why do I sound that way? Anyway, if you've ever felt that way, listening to your voice, I completely understand and I relate to you and you will love this episode because Casey and Julie are here for you and they will help you. Just like they opened my eyes when I was recording this because there were a lot of things, honestly, I just didn't know. And I love that Casey and Julie normalize feeling this way about your own voice. They are so powerful. Like I just loved talking to them. So I can't wait for you guys to listen to this um, and I will catch you on the flip side. Enjoy. All right. Welcome Casey and Julie to the Next Big Thing podcast. We're so happy to be here. Indeed. So pumped to have you guys here. So let's talk about Vital Voice. What is Vital Voice and how would you describe it to listeners? 
So we are a voice, public speaking, and communication coaching company. Julie and I come from an acting background, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more in just a couple of minutes, but we're bringing the tools of the actor and the knowledge that we have as voice coaches. My background is in musical theater. Julie's background is in sort of a weird term, straight theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, what 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 we bring to the table as actors is a knowledge of how the the body and the voice and our presence work together in all communication scenarios. And we wanted to bring that knowledge to non-actors because it's so beneficial. Can we talk a little bit about what straight theater is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes. So straight theater is not just cis theater. <laughs> straight theater is really just a term to refer to theater that doesn't have singing and dancing in it. That's that's really all it means. Plays instead of musicals. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I didn't like street theater. Yeah, my training wasn't singing and dancing. Um, it was really more diving into deep psychology of people, deep exploration of physicality, of voice and all of that stuff, but not connected to any sort of strictly performance of singing or dancing. Got it. So interesting. Hey, you learn something <laughs> new every day. I love this. <laughs> So how did the two of you meet and what are your backgrounds? Well, I will tell you, my background is throughout my teens and 20s, I really wanted to pursue theater. So I took kind of a mismatch of training and then decided I really wanted to study it really intensely. So I ended up going to grad school to get my MFA in acting. And from there, taking all of the stuff that I found fascinating, attaching it to how our voices function and how our voices can carry out our internal experience. And then in moving to New York, how I wanted to apply that training to make people's lives better, both in how we speak up, you know, how loud we speak up, but also what we're able to bring to the table. So I've always been a bit of a rule breaker. So the idea of traditional (laughs) understatement of the century. Yeah, just just a little bit. (laughs) So the idea of teaching traditional public speaking, which is really about perfecting adherence to rules, wasn't something I was interested in. And because there was so much potential for other exploration, that's, that's really where my heart was. And then I met Casey really randomly through what we like to call an affirmations aerobics class. It's this woman named Erin Stutland had this uh, class called Shrink Session, where it's aerobics combined with shouting affirmations. So it was all very, you know, in our bodies, exciting. And then Casey and I used that to launch into a goal setting program that we were in together. And as we were going through this and having meetings, realizing we had a lot of similarities with how we thought of voice. So it was sort of like starting with that dream weaver scene, spotting each other across a crowded room. And then that dance of, are we competition? Are we not? And then doing what actors do, which is take on a project Uh that is completely outside Uh of their expertise and figuring we just learned on the way (laughs) of starting a freaking business. (laughs) And we did. Yeah. It's been really this amazing journey. And And I do think that that point that Julie said of, are we competition or are we collaborators was such an interesting moment for us to figure out because I think, and I think a lot of women entrepreneurs go through this where you meet somebody who is really similar to you and you do that dance like, well, I I don't want to step on her toes or the opposite where you get super competitive and maybe cattiness or meanness comes into the picture because we are 
I think, taught as women that there's not enough to go around. So we get this scarcity mindset and then we feel like we have to be at each other's throats. And I'm so glad that Julie and I were able to very quickly move past that and then figure out all these commonalities. So my story, I grew up, I was a very outgoing, chatty, loud child. I also sang solos in church from the time I was four years old. I majored in musical theater. So yes, I I did major in singing and dancing and acting. So, you know, we got the lovely psychological exploration of character and the, the physicality. We just did it while we were doing jazz hands and singing high notes. But I worked professionally. I did some off-Broadway musicals. I had always throughout that, because like, let's be clear, being a professional actor is a terrible way to make a consistent living. I always had side gigs and my side gigs often looked like teaching voice. And it was primarily teaching singing voice. I taught both kids and teenagers and also my peers and my, my fellow professionals. And for me, the journey of my acting career was always about how do I go from being someone who was very much defined by what my voice could do, which always impressed people, and a people-pleasing perfectionist, I think that praise can be, and Brene Brown says this beautifully, praise can be as crippling as criticism is. Because once you're praised about something, you always have to match. You always have to match that place and then you have to exceed that place. So I defined myself by my voice and my journey as an actor was about what's the next step beyond that? How do I turn off the instinct to impress people or to please people and just show up and be present and tell the story, that that is so much more powerful of a way to show up. And again, like Julie said, matching this external idea of perfection or this external idea of get it right. So I was on the Les Mis tour for 18 months, which was a great job. And then I finished that job and I was unemployed again, which was a state I was very familiar with. I realized that I wanted something more than a side gig and the life of the auditioning professional actor. I wanted something that could be twin work with my acting career. I really like fell into an interview that I thought was for a singing coach position with a particular firm in New York City. And it turned out they wanted a speech coach. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> um, and my first client was Christy Harrison, who has this incredible podcast called Food Psych. And she didn't like the sound of her voice. And she was getting vocally fatigued. And she she just wanted to work on this stuff. And I had so much fun working with her. And then as I got more and more clients, so much fun helping people to discover the edges of their voice, the fullness of their voice, how their voice can be something that is a pleasurable experience as opposed to a fearful or nerve-wracking experience. And simultaneously, I learned that I did not like working for this company. (laughs) And I really felt like they were teaching a very old school model of public speaking, which is do your most credible imitation of a middle-aged white man in order to be taken seriously in the world. And so meeting Julie and finding this commonality, this this roiling frustration with, we don't want to teach people how to put on their serious voice. We know there's so much out there that people can be doing to really show up and really find power in who they really are as opposed to imitating another ideal. And that was just terrifically exciting for us and continues to be. Yes, I bet. That's so empowering too, to think about that. I remember when I first started this podcast, I was like, does my voice really sound like that? I think everyone has this like epiphany moment of like, whoa, that's what I sound like. Because before you just listen to yourself, like 
on a voicemail and you'd be like, oh, that's mm-hmm. kind of weird, you know, hearing the sound of my voice. But now a podcast, I feel like it really amplifies how you feel about your personal speaking and your voice. So I love that example. And also too, I want to touch back on one of your points about women feeling competitive all the time, because it's really true. You see someone who has maybe a similar mindset and could be the same way that you are and actually be an actual like mind, but you might immediately see them as competition. And it's just weird that we're conditioned to feel that way. We are. And I think it starts so early. I, you know, this narrative of like, oh, women are all catty and competitive and like female friendships aren't real. Like the sort of classic, like cool girl who's like, well, I'm just friends with guys because guys are easier. This narrative starts so early. It starts when we're in elementary school. I mean, if you're taught to see all other girls as kind of bombs of meanness waiting to go off, then of course you're not going to have healthy relationships with other girls because you're waiting for them to stab you in the back because that's what you've been told they're going to do. So we have to change that narrative. And I'm so lucky to have this amazing group of female friends who are helping me actively change that narrative in myself and have been really for the last decade or more, because the reality is that there are a lot of catty women in theater, because again, there's not enough to go around. There's not enough jobs for all the talented people. So it's very easy to get competitive. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's so true. I think we can shift that together. I think what you're doing with Final Voice can be a huge help with that and even helping people communicate better. So when you told the story about podcasts, who are your typical clients? Are they people or are they businesses or both for Vital Voice? It's a bit of both. We, we really started working with individual clients. And weirdly, our first two clients were men. We'd started this business to empower women's voices and found that there are some men that need just as much help with that. And then that really branched out to doing more corporate presentations as we realized getting everyone on a team on the same page was a really huge benefit to their internal communication, not just working with the individuals, but also it allowed us to really explore different topics that we wanted to see addressed in the workplace Mm -hmm. and have a lot of fun creating programming. Because it turns out we not only love coaching people, we love designing curriculum as well, because we are that nerdy. (laughs) Our individual clients kind of fall into two broad categories. So there are the people who are doing perhaps more traditional public speaking. They are the face of their company. They're going to conferences. They're doing TED Talks. They're pitching for funding, right? So a little bit more, you know, super public facing traditional public speaking. And then the other part of our clientele are people who are leveling up within their organizations. And often this is, and we sort of hate this phrase, but it's a useful phrase for for people to understand the idea of executive presence, right? What does it mean to have executive presence? What does it mean to show up as a leader? And of course, our idea of executive presence is, is very different than perhaps the traditional, again, do your most credible imitation of a an educated upper middle class white man version of executive presence. Love it. I think that's awesome. And I love what you guys are doing. I mean, it really is. It's something that no one thinks about, I think, sometimes. I want to touch on why communication, public speaking, everything that Vital Voice does, why is are these things considered skills and not necessarily qualities that are innate within people? I know we touched on the elementary school feeling, but why is this something that is not something that people believe that they naturally have? I think with anything that feels high stakes, people have this tendency to picture a version of themselves outside of themselves that could do that or 
with imposter syndrome, the idea that somebody is better at it than they would be. And that sort of keeps people from looking at what they already have. So if you're coming from a place mm-hmm. of lack, this is a mystery to me, or this stresses me out, or I'm not exactly sure what this is. None of those are deal breakers. That's just the starting point for everyone. But if you feel like you're not entitled to be speaking up, those things will stop you. As far as a skill set goes, it really is something everyone can learn. It's a shift in focus from something that you can just hammer out and say 10,000 hours. Any sort of soft skill slash creative skill not only is very different as a skill, but the way we learn it uses different receptors. So once we can kind of get people over the hump that just because we're talking about soft skills doesn't mean we're talking about something completely undefinable, then people can settle into the idea that, oh, maybe I could do this. And then once you get that, you're you're golden. I think people, just to add to that idea of like a skill set versus something that's innate, I do think that people have an idea that public speaking or charisma or it factor is something that is innate. You either have it or you don't. And that that version of it, again, like Julie said, is outside of themselves. And so many people come to us looking to be fearless. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that we hammer home over and over and over is that there is no such thing as fearless public speaking. There's a lot of advertising out there that will sell you a course to teach you how to do fearless public speaking. And we will happily put a stake in the ground and say, that's BS. There's no such thing as fearless public speaking. I still get nervous before performances sometimes. I know what nerves feel like in my body. And I know that they're not a deal breaker. I know that they're not the whole story, nerves and fear, the idea that we're so afraid of public speaking is something that's so innate and so natural and so human. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just something to learn to work with, not something to learn to like conquer or overcome. Like we hate that language. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. It reminds me of anxiety in a lot of ways. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if, if someone has anxiety and you're just like, just relax. And people are like, as if that's going to help me, <laughs> like it's not going to help me at all, you know? And it's the same thing. It's kind of like embracing the nerves and knowing that you're alive to do public speaking versus just expecting that there are some people out there who are just perfect at it. Like, I think that's a really good common misconception. Is there anything else that you can think of in clients that you work with when it comes to communication or public speaking? What are some other potential like misconceptions that come up? Man, you got me saying just relax. I'm very much on my little high horse here on my couch in my living room about that. (laughs) I think that there is a way that we get commanded to do things. So like relax or take a breath or any of those things that sound very superior and put together, but have absolutely no tactics or technique in them. And then if you can't figure out how to make that happen, then you're the failure as opposed to it just being bad directions. So that's something Mm -hmm. we work really a lot with, with our clients is just sussing out what was bad directions, what was bad feedback, you know, what about you is actually not broken. It's just the situation you found yourself in. And that's just as important as, you know, the technical aspects of voice. The way that we explain how complex the voice is really part of why we are, we're very anti tips and tricks. We live in such a tips and tricks culture, right? 10 steps to blah, blah, blah success, or like one weird trick that'll make all your fears go away. (laughs) Like that 
especially when it comes to something as complex as your voice and your presence and communication, they just don't work because everything is context specific. So when we ignore the context around what we're doing, we're cutting ourselves off from crucial information, right? And especially when we're talking about people whose voices are outside of the mythic norm, outside of who we see as a leader, who we see as charismatic, who we see as successful. If you're already starting from a place of, I am an unexpected factor here, you have a lot of context that you have to figure out how to work through. And the good news is that everybody knows how to work through those contexts because we have to do it. It's survival, right? So we're trying to shift people from a survival focus to a flow focus and a creativity and an iteration and a curiosity-based focus on how can I show up as the best version of myself. Oh, I love that. That sounds so much lighter and pleasant than what people think all of this is, which is nice. Exactly. And nobody who is putting on their serious voice and cutting themselves off from all of their power is going to be getting the results that they hope they're going to get from doing that. It really is that play, that curiosity, that fluidity that feeling of ease is such an important aspect of it as opposed to, you know, that gripping effort that makes you feel like you're controlling it. Yeah, I can completely see that. When people come to you as prospective clients or businesses, what do they typically ask for? Just out of curiosity, I I would love to know what the most common asks or requests are. Well, of course, right now it's how do I not feel like a dork on Zoom? Um, How do I show up on video with confidence? Because video is a big barrier for a lot of people, you know, and, and we've sort of been forced to go over that hurdle very quickly, which is honestly not such a bad way to get over a hurdle when you kind of just have to do it trial by fire. But what we're interested, especially right now, is teaching, again, a deeper version of how do we really connect with people on video? How do we get past just the, well, I know how to put my computer at the right height and I know how to fill the screen or I know how to frame myself and get down to the the elements that are deeper and more interesting. How do we make connections? How do we sell things? How do we create rapport and trust? How do we manage conflict? All of these things like with the added barrier of video, that's the biggest thing right now. But there are so many things that come up repeatedly. Julie, I know I'm forgetting some of them. And I I will preface this by saying... I think it's pretty obvious we live in a culture that likes to pick apart women's voices. It seems to be a very open field for any sort of armchair speech teacher to address. So a lot of times women are coming, oh, my boss says I'm too quiet. My boss says I upspeak. My my boss says I vocal fry. My boss says I I don't sound professional or, you know, any number Mm -hmm. of what is often contradictory perceptions of what is going on with the voice and how to quote improve it, which as Casey said, is really based on models that we already have in our head. What is a leader supposed to sound like? Well, I don't know. Let's reinvent it. So those things, those specific issues are common. And the way we usually approach those is, again, looking at the context they exist in and looking at what is the physical reason why those happen and what is the, since everything we do is to get something, to move a conversation forward, to engage, what was the purpose of that particular vocal tool? Does it make sense in all environments? Is there something else we can find that has the same result, but isn't keeping you in a habit that isn't letting you access your full power? Yeah, 
You know, it's interesting too, when you guys are talking about someone coming to you for upspeak, for example, or maybe having anxiety or nervous tics when they're speaking. I feel like people probably come to you for surface level concerns around their voice. And it sounds like what you're saying is that there's actually like a deeper underlying cause as mm-hmm. to why that might be. That's not just like, I don't like the sound of my voice. Oh, it's so true. Just in the last two weeks, I think at least three different clients have said to me like, wow, this really feels a little bit like therapy. <laughs> it's totally. and, and and that's because, I mean, that's for really good reason. It's because our voices are so deeply connected to everything that makes us human. And because we develop our habits, as Julie said, within contexts, right? Nobody up speaks because they want to sound unsure of themselves. And for anyone in your audience who is not sure what up speak means, up speak is the vocal pattern that just involves a little bit of an up in the pitch. And it kind of lands like this instead of landing on a down, right? And in American English, typically we end sentences on a down. That's the signal that I've come to the end of my sentence. But there are all kinds of reasons why the inflection might go up at the end of the sentence, including things like, I'm not finished, please don't interrupt me, including things like, I'm feeling nervous right now, so I'm rushing through my content. I want to make sure that you know that I'm not going to come into a stop, right? Or Julie, do you want to explain the Silicon Valley accomplishments dump? Because this is something we're still trying to find the right way to talk about it, but it's a very specific style of of upspeak that I think is such a great example of this as a habitual thing and as a cultural thing. Yeah, Silicon Valley has its own entire communication rhythm, which has just been fascinating coming from New York out here. And two ways it really manifests, both are sort of related to upspeak, is in Silicon Valley, you don't end a sentence, you just forcefully begin the next sentence. (laughs) So idea, 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 and idea, 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 and, and there's no delineation between ideas. It's all one big running monologue. We also see this happening when people start talking about their accomplishments, this upspeak comes in. So for example, my name is Julie. I went to University of Washington for my undergrad. And then I went to Northern Illinois University for my MFA. And I've been in New York City and I've done all of this stuff and I've had all of these experiences. So now I'm going to get to the real content of my presentation. I just muted myself because I just died laughing when you said that. So So many people do that. I think I do that. And when you said that and you use that example, I'm like, God damn it. Like I know. I've done that before (laughs) and other people listening for sure have done that before. So that example is going to hit home, I think, for a lot of listeners. What's the harm? in me giving myself a complete sentence to say, I went to University of Washington. Then I went to grad school at Northern Illinois University. It takes very little time to do that, but it does take ownership and to take both my you know, sound space and time space that my accomplishments are just as worthy as whatever thing I'm trying to sell, you know? What is the underlying reason why someone does the upspeak when they're talking about themselves specifically? to get through it as fast as possible, I think. Yes, absolutely. I I think we are so, and again, I think this really shows up specifically for women. We don't think that it's the important part of the conversation. And so we want to rush through it, or we don't feel like we deserve to take up that space, or we don't want to look like we're bragging. All of these things are really powerful reasons why somebody is going to do that. But the, the act And we say this in the context of taking up time space and energetic space and also taking up physical space. I think women are are socialized really 
in all ways to take up as little space as possible, to leave space for other people. Mm -hmm. And and we want to shift that idea to say that just because you are owning your space and taking space doesn't mean that you're taking space away from someone else. What if there's enough space to go around? Now, obviously, like on the subway in New York City, that's not always the truth. But (laughs) in the world, there can getting away from this idea of scarcity and saying like, I can take space. And not only can my taking space not necessarily steal space from someone else, it can give someone permission to take space themselves. That's so powerful. That's almost too big for us to think about. I mean, not even saying that sarcastically, like it really, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around that because it's not anything that we've ever heard or been taught before. No, this is our challenge. Yes. (laughs) yes. And your accomplishments are not off topic, you know? When people veer to talk about themselves, they think they've steered the ship away from why they're really there. It is not off topic. If you're saying them in your speech, they deserve to be there. So make them part of the whole. Don't put them at the kids' table at Thanksgiving, you know? Oh, that gives me chills. That is such a good analogy, too. I love that. Going off of the the dynamic between women and men when it comes to feeling confident in our own voice. What are the typical, I don't know, common themes that you see when you work with women versus when you work with men? It sounds like with women, it's much more like they don't feel like their voice needs to be heard or they try to get through it quickly so that they can skip over it. But how would you define the two different points of view from each gender? I have a couple of stories for this. The gentlemen who typically hire us to help them are not necessarily representative of a hyper-masculine kind of old school, like big booming voice, super dominant. Like the guys who work with us tend to be either Silicon Valley types. They're a little nerdier. They might be engineers. They might be a little softer spoken. Often they are not originally from America. They might be English as a second language. So they actually might have some of the similar challenges to women in feeling like they have to fit a particular style of American masculine speech that is not necessarily inherent to who they are. But I did have an experience once where I was hired to come into a fintech company and help them with this presentation. And I was working with all of the members of their leadership team. And there was a middle-aged guy who was... He looked like like a former quarterback, maybe in high school or something. And he was going through his speech and I was giving him some adjustments. And every time I gave him adjustment, his response was, oh, I know. I know. I was going to do that. I was like, oh, interesting. Oh I That's great. I'm so glad that you uh-huh. already knew about that. Um, this is your opportunity to show me. Oh, I love that. It was a fascinating moment in time. But, but Julie, I mean, do we want to talk about our first ever all-male presentation? Oh, 100%. And by the way, I was hoping you would tell that story about, I know, I know, because that is such a difference between men and women. Men know everything already. So why am I there? And women don't have the confidence of what they actually do know a lot of times. I have never had a female client say, oh, I already knew that when I give them instruction. I'm sure. I'm sure. As we've gone through, and especially, again, Silicon Valley being such a different animal than New York City, we have landed in these corporate presentations where we've walked in and been completely surprised that we are presenting to an all-male team. It just never occurred to us that that was something we would do. So with this particular example, Casey, I'm going to talk about posture. Please do. Okay, great. We walk into this room and there's seven founders and engineers, and they're all 
sitting kind of arms crossed, laid back in the chair, almost as if to challenge or say, prove yourself to me. And we've been doing this a long enough time that we don't just assume you know what somebody's intentions are. And we're so glad we didn't because they were actually incredibly engaged. And it turned out that part of that arms crossing thing was because they had picked up on a message that men take up too much space and shrinking in and crossing arms was their way of trying to show the women in their office that they weren't a threat. Teenage boy posture. (laughs) So it was a really interesting dynamic to look at. Of course, my way of saying you're not a threat is to perhaps invite some women into the presentation, but that's, that's my editorial in that event. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure so many women are maybe even less confident about their public speaking and their voice than they should be. Like they should probably be more confident. Very much so. I mean, listen, we work with some of the most incredible women on the planet, in my opinion. We are unapologetic nerds and geeks and about the people that we work with. We think they're extraordinary and we're so grateful that they continue to find us. All of them, all of them suffer from imposter syndrome (laughs) to the extent that you know, these are women you'd see at a networking event and think like, oh gosh, I don't know if I could go over and talk to her. She's like the star of the party. They're thinking the same thing about you. They really are. And it's fascinating to me. It's been so interesting to have these really intimate conversations with people who, you know, I was a nerdy girl at school. Like I remember looking at the popular girls and not thinking that they had any problems. I think that's a pretty familiar thing that again, as kids, we have this idea that everybody else has it together and other people have more confidence. And really all of us are making it up as we go along. And all of us are again, just trying to survive. That's like the top thing that our brains want us to do is survive. So I've started making some pretty intentional perspective shifts on imposter syndrome. And one of them, I actually just did a workshop for a conference of uh, public servants in uh, DC. And one of the very specific perspective shifts that I want to make is that Maybe imposter syndrome is actually a good thing. Obviously not too much of it because too much of it keeps us from acting. It keeps us from doing the things that we want to do. But a little bit of imposter syndrome keeps us from breaking the world. Because like, think about all of the people who are causing problems in the world right now. They don't appear to have any imposter syndrome, even when they should, right? Even when they have no freaking clue what they're doing. So it's like that, That little bit of imposter syndrome, A, is the most natural thing in the world and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And it actually, like, based on the evidence of the Dunning-Kruger effect, might actually be a signal that you know more than you think you do. And it's an opportunity for us to, to stay the right kind of humble, to stay reaching out for support, to stay connected with people, to stay striving and continuing to, to get better and to explore and to not think we have Uh, all the answers or like I alone can fix it. So maybe reframing imposter syndrome as nothing to be ashamed of for sure, but also maybe a little bit as a good thing can be a perspective shift for people. The combination of confidence and humility, both pieces are necessary. So oftentimes women are pressured just to be more confident when I think sometimes going along with what Casey was saying, maybe some people that go with that Dunning-Kruger, I can do it because I think I can really need some more humility instead of always pushing women to stop doing something or do something different. You know, what are we trying to look at as a whole picture? So both of those pieces are really crucial. 
Totally. It's it's like that advice of don't say sorry, right? Well, actually, maybe some people need to say sorry more. Well, it's also gets used as a criticism against women. You're weak because you say sorry. But we forget that Canadian culture and English culture really include a ton of apologies just as a linguistic rhythm. It's not a character defect or a um, subservient gesture. It's part of just linguistic rhythm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so true. And you know what? The people that are saying sorry, a lot of times it's either a habit that they have, right? Or they genuinely mean it, but I feel for the people who have it even as a habit, because sometimes you just don't even realize that you're doing it. You've just been conditioned to do it. I would love as we we wrap up a little bit, I would just love to hear you talked about Zoom before and Zoom, obviously everyone can relate to that right now because we're all on video calls all day. So if you were to give listeners one quick Zoom tip and then one quick general tip, maybe if they're having conversation with a friend or presenting in front of a small group, what would you say? The biggest tip both for Zoom and for the other actually is A, what furniture are you sitting on? Just because people can't see what you're sitting on doesn't mean you shouldn't be paying attention to it. Being off balance or trying to adjust yourself to furniture is just going to create a whole kind of tension creep and really mess with your voice. It also means you can't do our biggest advice for on camera is to embrace your gravitas by letting your butt be big. Hashtag let your butt be big. Whatever you're sitting on, let your butt be big stop micro contracting. You don't need to be polite to the furniture. It's going to give you a really strong base. And it turns out the human body actually really, really wants to let gravity take it. And when you do allow that, then you allow a bunch of upward energy to come out of that, as opposed to needing to sort of haul yourself up to look like you're prepared and leaning in, blah, blah, blah. It's the opposite. Good girl posture. It's the opposite. Let your furniture, take your weight, let your butt be big. And that's just really going to open up all the channels and allow you to feel like you really belong in that space. And it reads beautifully over the camera. Everyone loves this right now. Everyone's like, okay, (laughs) got it. And then the general tip, and again, I think this is for all venues, it's not about you. And it's not about how you're doing. If it is in your head about you, if you're looking for everyone's reaction and thinking, oh, they don't like me, you're going to go into fear mode. You're going to go into please like me, or you're going to go into I hate these people, or you're going to go into I just want this to be over. Those are all fear-based objectives. So if you can take the focus off yourself and how you're doing, and just to bring this full circle, again, this is what I spent 10 years of acting training on, getting out of my own head and stop, stop being my own director. And instead, focus on the story that I'm telling and the person I'm connecting to on stage and the, the pleasure of the act of communication. What, what do I want? What do I want? What do they want? And what's in the middle that we can create together? It's so much more powerful of a place to come from than how am I doing? Casey, you just gave me chills. <laughs> that was so good. I can picture how impactful that would be in front of a crowd of people if you're focusing on that and not how nervous you are. And our brains need something else to do, right? When they're scared, our brains need something else to do. That gives you a really practical thing to do. Completely agree. So two final questions. What is next for Vital Voice and how can people work with you? So for Vital Voice, while we've been in quarantine, we've been very deeply looking at how we can best serve right now. It feels like a time to really 
step up to the plate for that as opposed to thinking about how are we going to profit off of everyone's tragedy. So we've gone really, really deeply into on-camera connections and we've put together um, both individual and corporate curriculum on, as Casey was saying earlier, how to create deep connections through this medium of Zoom. That's the critical part. That's really all that matters. The, the technical stuff, that all comes, that you could YouTube, but that really deep ability to show up and not let the technology impede you from making the connections you want to make is what we have really been putting our mind to. So there's that. And then most importantly, also, we did a deep dive into the topic of authenticity, which was <laughs> going to start as a three-page paper. And instead, we wrote a 51-page ebook on authenticity, the failures and future to really look at this concept of authenticity and whether that's working for everybody or not and what it's being used as a substitute for. And as always, what's a more effective tool to get to that result, to get to that thing that you think just quote authenticity is going to give you. So that's what we're going to be doing with that is going to be emerging over the next couple months. And, and in the meantime, you can go to vitalvoicetraining.com backslash authenticity, and you can read the whole thing for free for a little while longer. We also have a really cool event coming October 21st. We are doing an event. We had so much trouble figuring out what to call it because we were like, is it a town hall? Is it an intellectual salon? Is it a cabaret? Like, what are we doing? So we just called it the future of authenticity. And we're going to be talking to a lot of very smart people. They're going to be telling us their perspectives. We're going to have some video content. We're going to have some performances. It's going to be a celebration of the concept. It's going to be a picking apart of the concept. And it's going to be what is what does the idea of authenticity look like in the framework of the future of work? Because that's what we're interested in. And, and the, the TLDR of all of this discussion on authenticity is that we have to re reframe authenticity from an individual pursuit to a community practice. We create the environment for authenticity to thrive. You can't just be authentic. It's got to be a community practice, just like all of communication is. I mean, could that be any more true? It's so true. I love that. And I think that name is amazing. I love the name of that event. So I will be sure to include that in the show notes, as well as links to your social and links to your website. But I got to say, Casey and Julie, this was phenomenal. I think everyone who's listening is going to think about the way that they speak and how they speak in a completely different way and, and hopefully show up in a more positive, confident way. So thank you for everything that you're doing and for empowering women to use their voice and be proud of their voice. Sweet. We really do love what we do. It feeds us so much and the mission and the people we get to work with, it, it's a joy. Absolutely. Yeah, I can feel that. Yeah, <laughs> I can feel it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Okay. Did we love that episode or what? Did we love Casey and Julie? Like, come on. They're awesome. They know so much about the space. When I was talking to them, it was making me laugh. I had to mute myself because when they were talking and giving tips of how different people's voices are, I was like, shit, that's how I sound. And then I would have to mute myself and be like, oh, I got to lock it up. And I would take what they were saying and I would try to apply it in real time. That's how scary their work is. They will transform you that quickly. Just in a podcast episode, I was already taking their tips and running with it. So thank you, Casey and Julie, for joining the podcast. You are amazing. 
The next big thing loves you. And the next big thing is empowering women to feel more confident and comfortable with their own voice. So happy to have you on the podcast. And I can't wait for the rest of the year. We've got so many exciting podcast guests lined up, you guys. And I hope you're so pumped to listen. And I think it will motivate you if you haven't started your business in 2020 or you're beginning to start your business. I think these next few guests will really get you into the mindset of go time for the remainder of the year. If you loved today's episode, by the way, if you loved it, please leave a rating and review. It means so much to us. Uh, Go to the Apple Podcasts section, search the next big thing, give us five stars, and also leave us a review. I would be so grateful and it makes my day. I say that every podcast, but it really, really does. And I appreciate all of the wonderful feedback we've been getting If you have any additional feedback, I will go ahead and leave my email in the show notes as well. It's pod at onceandmore.co. I will also leave it in the show notes. But if you have more direct feedback, give it to me. We want to improve. I mean, this podcast is what? Almost three months old. We're not even toddlers anymore. We're getting there. So please leave honest feedback. Send me honest feedback. I love to hear it. And I love to continue to grow. So Thank you so much again for listening. Thank you, Casey and Julie, for being guests. And I will catch you guys next week. 